we're talking about the ascension of Jesus. And I want to make sure, again, as I always hope to do by the leading of the Holy Spirit, to set things in their proper place and perspective. When we look at the Scriptures, when we look at this whole issue of a Messiah who is going to come, the first stated Scripture is in Genesis 3.15, you will remember, the seed of the woman. And when we look at the Old Testament, as the Old Testament begins to prefigure or adumbrate or give types and examples and ministries that point to the coming of God's Messiah, when we look at the incarnation of Jesus in the womb of Mary, according to John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the trial of Jesus, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, when we look at the death of Jesus, when we look at the burial of Jesus, when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, when we look at the ascension of Jesus, when we look at the coronation of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, the soon coming King, what are we seeing? We must not primarily see something about or for us. We must make sure that we don't make this a me thing. What we're seeing is the gift of the Father's love in giving his Son to us and the gift of the Father's love in giving us to his Son. And in that is the location and the activity and the expression of the glory of God beginning in Genesis 1-1 and continuing forever. Amen? So when the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus, He is giving to us the gift of His love for us having been himself given to us by the Father's love so that we could be the people of the Father's love in the beloved Son. Do we see this? We want to make sure that this is the central and controlling and comprehensive activity that is going on in what is called the gospel, what is called our redemption, what is called the purpose of creation, etc. What is it all about? It's all about the Father's love. It's all from the Father's love, and it is all for the Father's love, What love? That love which the Father has for the Son and the Spirit 
and reciprocally so. It is that intra, I-N-T-R-A, intra-Trinitarian love of God. It is the essence of his being. That's what this is all about. And we want to make sure that when we talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit, and when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, we do not want to make the activities and how they impact us and how we are to relate to them as our primary attention. We want to make sure that this is the Father's work of proof that he loves us. Amen? Okay. All of that is not in the notes, so I can't help you if you're looking around. I just felt to say that as we started. So let's start with the notes. We have seen that the Holy Spirit was sent to us. Why? To manifest Jesus. What scripture is that? John 15, 26. Remember, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is from the Father. What? And he will testify or bear witness to me. The Holy Spirit is the Father's gift of love to us through the authorization of the Son of God as the King of kings and Lord of lords, given to us in order to incorporate us into his family of love. So in this, we've already learned that the Spirit was not given, and this is extremely important. I don't know if you don't get anything else this morning. Get this. Is this one in your notes about the Spirit was not given? Is it? Yes or no? Underline this. The Spirit is not given to improve or perfect our human nature. But he is given to, he, but to give and mature within us the very nature of the Lord Jesus himself. The Spirit of God, and we said this last week, is not given to make me more patient. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. He's not given to make me more kind. My wife would tell you I need to be more gentle. Is that right, D? You can say yes. Say yes. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> Don't you love being in here? People look at the class and say, oh, my word, what is that? <laughs> Charles, do you, you ever had that issue at home? You don't, okay. What about the issue of truth? <laughs> He's not coming back. Now, who else can we eliminate from the classroom? The, the Holy Spirit is not given to improve or make my life, my, the way I live, better. Please get this out of our minds. <clears throat> we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I as constituted in Adam, I according to my old nature of corruption. It is no longer I who live, but what? It is what? Christ who lives in me by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to first apply the crucified, natural, sinful nature 
of his people. This is obviously a spiritual work. And he is given to give to us the resurrected, righteous, holy nature of the Son of God. Correct? And now the work of the Spirit, you read it. Remember, we've read it before in Romans 8, 29. For whom we have been predestined to be conformed to the image. In other words, the very character, the image of God's Son. And the image of God's Son is not Peter Davidson trying to do things better. The image of God's Son is not trying to, I'm going to try to be more patient, brother. I'm going to pray for more kindness. How many of us, don't we do this? I'm going to pray for more self-control, right? Well, if what you're meaning is that the work of the Holy Spirit in developing the love of God in me is what you're praying for so that that love of God in me is controlling and overcoming the flesh in me, then you're right. But if you're looking to have your own love being improved in some way, then you're wrong because that's a selfish, idolatrous request. Do we get that? It is such a burden in my heart that we get that. Because I see and hear believers all the time trying to deal with their natural love or their natural goodness and natural whatever and thinking God has come to make me so much better. He has come to raise up his son in me. This is not an improvement ministry. It is the revelation of one man, one man who is the image of God. Remember Colossians 1.15, and he is the image of the invisible God. So let's talk this morning about the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I, want to, I think I can go through this pretty quickly. Uh, I, I am always betwixt and between how fast or slow to go. Uh, we've covered a lot of this before, but I need to make sure I set a context. I was not going to do this, and, but I felt the Holy Spirit say, wait, wait, stop, make a context. Many have heard it, some haven't, so let's go through it. So this morning we're going to begin to look at how the Spirit manifests Jesus in us through the gifts of the Spirit. We've already seen how the Holy Spirit manifests the character of Jesus in us through what? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Today, the gifts of the Spirit. How he manifests the ministry, the activities, the work of Jesus in us as we're calling them the gifts of the Spirit. This phrase, the gifts of the Spirit, by the way, is not found in the Bible. And you, you'll see that a lot of things that we talk about biblically are not found in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't there, so people say it's not, it's not real. Well, the word resurrection isn't in the Old Testament. So what do you do with that? So the, word, the, the phrase gifts of the Spirit is, is a phrase that has to do with the ministry activities that authenticate Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man the Jewish Messiah, especially as recorded in that very strange vision that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you remember in Daniel, Daniel has had this, this vision of these four natural empires that are going to rule over the world. 
Some of you may remember something about Daniel. And then, after having given Daniel the four, the vision of the four empires, then the Holy Spirit gives Daniel a vision of God's ruler. You're going to have these rulers and hear them, what they're going to do and how they're going to act. But there's coming someone who is coming out of the humanity to be the ruler of God's kingdom. And so we get this, this uh, quote from Daniel 13, verse, chapter 7, verse 13, 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven. Did you, did you recognize what that was just then? Stop for a moment. With the clouds of heaven. Now, who can tell me where, where you've seen that before? Jesus will return what? Come on. With the clouds of heaven. Are you with me? Jesus will return how? With the clouds of heaven. I don't believe it means a cloudy day. All the believers who have been gathered unto God by that time, with their white robes on, will come with him, and it's going to look like a very bright, shiny, cloudy day. He's coming back with us. We're the clouds. But here's this in Daniel. With the clouds of glory, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages to serve him. What does that remind you of? What verse? Yes, Genesis one You're absolutely right. His dominion, remember, take dominion and rule. Do you remember that? Multiply and fill. That's Genesis one twenty-eight being what? Fulfilled. See the Bible this way. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The title of the Ancient of Days is found really here in Daniel chapter 7. And it refers to a theophonic revelation of God. In other words, it's a revelation of God the Father put in terms of humanity so that we can understand it a little better. You've seen it where it says God has... Uh, white hair, and he had, you know, this. And, you know, those are just terminologies that we can, that are given to us so we can have some kind of an idea of what we're talking about here. It's just the way God does it. In verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man is a man upon whom the Ancient of Days confers royal authority. Remember, an everlasting kingdom or dominion. And he confers a kingdom that shall not pass away. You see, the Jews understood this to be their Messiah. And that God in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, had given that promise to the Messiah. He's given that promise. I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. You're my son. And so we know that this scripture is about a divine figure. And also remember this, because when the Jews read Daniel 7, they also had in their minds 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to, 15, 12 to 13. Okay, I have it here like that. So when they're reading Daniel 7, 13 and 14, they also have remembrance of 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 
to 13 or 14, depending on how far you want to read it. And you remember, that's God's promise to David that he will have a descendant, a son, a seed, the son of David, who will reign over God's kingdom for how long? Forever and ever. And so they, they put these two understandings together. The son of David, specifically God's promised Messiah who would reign over Israel in their minds as an eternal earthly kingdom, they are thinking, and it will be this son of man who will be doing this. So they've joined these two together. And so in their mind, and I think correctly so, this is something about their Messiah. It is a description of the Messiah and his activities and his purpose. Now, when does Jesus claim to be the Messiah? I'm sorry, the Son of Man. If you look at the New Testament, I think it's in Matthew alone is 30 times, but I don't remember how many in the other Gospels. Jesus used the word or the phrase title, Son of Man, more than any other title. He never referred to himself as the Son of David, never did. He didn't say you're wrong. He just didn't use that terminology for himself. In John's Gospel, remember the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man is Jesus claiming to be that figure that is prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14. So when we read our Bibles, let's not read them in isolation of this massive mountain of revelation called the Old Testament, but let us read our Bibles in the New Testament in relation to that which is being fulfilled, having been prophesied and walked out in some kind of types and foreshadows in the Old Testament. But mostly, in his arrest and trial, Jesus uses this title of the Son of Man where we see what the Jewish leaders are understanding. You remember this? The priests are questioning him. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? You know. And Mark fourteen sixty one to 63. And again, the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the Christ? Remember, Christ means what? Messiah, anointed one. Are you the one whom God has poured out the oil of anointing, meaning the Holy Spirit, to be his personal representative to carry out his will? Are you that anointed one? Are you that Messiah? Because remember, in Judaism, only the high priest and the king were anointed, and then sometime a prophet. So this is a very specific thing they're talking about. Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed the son of Yahweh. Are you that one, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, Ego Amy. Ego Amy. I am. I am. He uses the name of Yahweh to proclaim his identity. I am. If you were to read in chapter, especially chapter 45 of Isaiah, you see, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I, Yahweh, am. It is a self-proclamation of this one who has always been, this self-existing one, this God of Israel. I am. 
And he says, I am. And you will see who? The Son of Man. Who? The one who is prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This mysterious divine figure whom the Jews understood to be the Messiah of God. Some kind of way connected, related to God in some kind of way that makes them very, very close because he sits in the throne of God with God. And they don't quite get this, but they know that this cannot be a mere human being who has this authority and this ability and who has this kind of relationship. He has to be more than just somebody. They know this. This is their heritage. This is their understanding. This is their religion. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming, what? With the clouds of glory. What did it say in Daniel? In that verse, coming what? With the clouds of glory. One like the Son of Man. He's quoting Daniel 7, 13 and 14 to them. He's saying, I'm that figure. You see, he's claiming that he's claiming to be the divine figure. And so, what is their reaction? Ah! They tear, you know, they rip their robes off. Blasphemy! What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. You see, how can this mere man, now think about it, let's stop and not be too critical, at least, of the theology that they understood. We're not talking about their hearts. How can this mere man, this son of a carpenter, this man from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember who said that? Nathaniel, when Philip said, "Ah, we've seen the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. What? The Messiah is where? From where? Bethlehem. You got your facts mixed up. Your theology's wrong. That can't be the Messiah. Nothing good's coming out of Nazareth. I've heard people say, well, because Nazareth wasn't a good... It has to do with what Micah, the prophet, said. Thee, O Bethlehem, you're the least, but you'll be... From you will come him who is from old to be my king leading my people, right? Bethlehem. That's why Nazareth isn't anything as far as prophecy is concerned, at least in this issue. How can this man from Nazareth, it makes like saying the Messiah is coming from West Wego. <laughs> or it could be worse. The Messiah is coming from Chalmette. <laughs> or it could be worse than that. The Messiah is coming from Jefferson Parish. Or it could be worse than that. The Messiah is coming from Washington, D.C. Do do we get it? You You look at this and you think, how can that be? How can you be the Messiah? You don't even have the birth credentials, for goodness sakes. And we know that God is not a liar when he says his Messiah will come from Bethlehem. What does that mean? What does it mean? He's coming from Bethlehem as his birthplace. But see, they don't know this. They didn't look up his birth record. How can this man, this man of no repute, 
This man who hasn't been educated in the higher knowledge of the rabbinical tradition, this man, this man who cavorts with prostitutes, who's out there with these sinners, this man who has that group of 12 ragtag people, who are these people? You're the Messiah? Because you see, the Messiah is the son of David. He is heir to the royal throne and house of David. The Messiah is a king. And you ain't no king. You ain't no king. You see how the world will always deprecate, put down the people of God. Amen. And when they call you a name, you can say, you know what? That doesn't bother me at all. I told somebody the other day, I don't care what they call me. You can think of the worst, nastiest, and filthiest names to call me. I don't care. If you get upset by what somebody calls you, shame. You know why I don't care, Darren? Because my father calls me son. And that name overcomes any and every name that anyone on this earth can call me. Can you say amen? Can we get loose from all this foolishness? Did you hear what he said about me? He called me. That. Are you kidding? Who cares? It's God's proclamation of who you are that wins the day for eternity, correct? So don't get your feathers ruffled. When that happens, I told him. I said, you know what? There's only one name that I have. Huh? God calls me a son. I'm a son of the family. And I don't care what you say. Now be careful. Someone's going to say something about you to you this week. And you got to remember what? God called you his own forever. That's not even in the notes. You don't have to pay for that. Who is this man who can claim to be the son of God, king, Israel's king? Isn't this exactly what Mark 1, 1 says? Remember how the gospel of Mark begins? The beginning. Now, wait, stop. We're not thinking if you didn't think of Genesis just then. How many you did not think of Genesis when I just said that? All of you thought of Genesis. That's great. How does Genesis begin? In the beginning. How does Mark begin? The beginning. In other words, what he's saying is that which I'm going to tell you has its roots where? In Genesis 1, 1 and following. Can we get the comprehensiveness of the word of God? The beginning of the gospel, good news, of what? Of whom? Of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. The gospel is not about me. It impacts me. It changes me. The gospel is not about how I live. It impacts that and should change that. 
The gospel isn't theological suppositions, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, and glorified. Remember those words? Those are great words to study, but that's not the gospel. The gospel, Paul says in Romans 1, of God's Son. Jesus Christ himself is the good news of God for us, from God. It is the good news. He is the good news about God. He is the good news for God. And he is the good news from God. And we are the recipients of that good news, correct? Let's make sure we get it right. Sometimes we get these things confused. We put ourselves too close to the center. We make ourselves too important. Are we important? Absolutely. But not too important in relation to God. And anyway, our importance is only because of the gospel. Correct? So, this is how Mark begins. And then, in the rest of his gospel, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8, I think it's verse 26, he, Jesus does this, he does that, he heals, he, he calms storms, he forgives, he calls disciples. We get a listing, boom, 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 of the authenticating authority of this man to be or to be shown as the Messiah, the Son of God. Those quick movements and activities and with some teaching in the Spurs are the Holy Spirit's way through this man, Mark, to show and to prove what Jesus does in order to set the foundation for us to show who he is. And so in the, about the middle of the gospel, I think it's verse 26 in chapter 8. I could be corrected. We go to Caesarea Philippi. We go out in the, you know, the disciples go outside of Jerusalem. We go outside of Judea, outside of Galilee, outside of Israel. We go into pagan territory. Caesarea Philippi is where uh, the Pontius Pilate, that was a Roman kind of seat of power in that area. You're in high cotton over here. You're in really goofy territory. You're going out where all these idols and, and, and stone things and gods are there. And Jesus was sitting among all those things. And he sees all of this and disciples in the midst of all of this pagan idolatry. And he says, who do, you, who do men say that I am? You see, these times, who do they say I am? You're Elijah. You're Moses. You're John the Baptist. And then he says what? In relation to all of this, who do you say that I am? And what's Peter's confession? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, Mark only says, thou art the Christ. But that's the full thing in Matthew. Then, from that point to the end of chapter 10, we begin to get these passion predictions from Jesus. Suffering. Cross. Humiliation, death, dying, blood. You see, Mark has set by the Spirit's leadership a foundation to show that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is being demonstrated to be 
God's Messiah in the things or the ministries that he does. Do we see this? The ministries are proving the claim. I'm the son of man. Well, what makes you so sure? How do we know that? Your sins are forgiven. Rise up and walk. Blind eyes are open. Stop the storms. Cast out the demons. No mere man has the ability to do any of this. Only the divine man can do this. But how does he do it? Well, that's Jesus. No, that's not the answer. How does he do it? Because he's a son of God. That's not the answer. He does it because the son of God has taken to him our humanity, our body and soul in this man called Jesus Christ. And in this man, this man lives completely and absolutely and 100% of the time dependent upon, subject to, yielding to, and cooperative with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to him in order to perform the works of God. Jesus does nothing on his own. John John 5, 19 and 30. I don't do anything on my own. What does that mean? You don't do anything on your own. Look, you're doing this and that and the other thing. No, I don't do anything according to God's revelation on my own as to my personal humanity and my personal natural abilities. If any man had any natural abilities, this man had them. And yet, Lester, he's not using them. It shows us what? The Spirit is the one who reproduces in Jesus and produces in him the revelation of God the Father. Remember in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. But all of that is done how? Under the ministry and power, what? Of the Holy Spirit. Listen to these verses. Do you have them listed in your, uh, your, your, your notes? Matthew and Mark and so on, Luke. Hmm? He doesn't have Matthew 118 there? Okay. <clears throat> Listen to these verses that talk about Jesus. Absolute dependent. Let's get out of our minds. Well, that was Jesus, Chris. Mike, that's Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus. That's Paul, of course, Moses. No. It's the Holy Spirit in these men, empowering them. Can you say amen? What does that begin to say about me and you? Begin all of a sudden to realize, wow, this is what's going on. Matthew 118, Mary was found to be with child how? Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.16, and Jesus was being baptized. John saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and coming resting upon him. Luke 4, 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about in the wilderness. Luke 4, 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Luke 4, 16 and 19, and when he came to Nazareth, remember, Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah into chapter 61, and he begins to say, this is my 
the reason I'm here. So he reads this. This young man whom they've seen and heard some stories about, he's coming to town. He's going to speak. He's our special speaker this morning. We're going to have Jesus as our special speaker. So they bring him up there. Handing the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. We don't know whether that was a normal reading or he asked for that. Don't know that. And he opens up to this scripture and he says this. The spirit of Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? The God of Israel. The spirit, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Because he has anointed me what? This is how you know that I have the Spirit. This is how you know I am from Yahweh. This is how Yahweh himself is being manifested in me, by the Holy Spirit. And he has anointed me to do what? Proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. Does that mean people ain't got no money? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Colossians 1.13. And receiving of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Matthew 12.28. Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God. Hebrews 9.14. Christ who brought who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus couldn't even offer himself to God at the cross apart from the spirit. Are we beginning to see what's going on here? Would we have a salvation had it not been that Jesus was led by the spirit? Would we? Yes or no? No. Our salvation, like anything and everything else in creation, is a Trinitarian work. The Father is involved, the Son is involved, and the Holy Spirit is involved. The Father is involved as to his specific role. The, Holy, the Son is involved as to his specific role. The Holy Spirit is involved as to his specific role. The work of the Trinity, these three persons, is called indivisible. In other words, they're all involved but not, and, and distinguishable, but not inseparable. I mean, inseparable. They don't work separate from one another. They work in tandem. Everything that God does, he does as a community, as a community. So let me summarize this. Jesus ministered to the people's needs how? Is this in your notes? Well, let's say it together. He ministered to people's needs how? By the power of the Spirit. He cast out demons by the power of the Spirit. He fed thousands by the power of the Spirit. He healed diseases by the power of the Spirit. He forgave sin, power of the Spirit. He raised up the dead by the power of the Spirit. He went to the cross by the power of the Spirit. He rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit. He saved us by the power of the Spirit. That same Holy Spirit lives in us if we are God's children in order to make us God's children, correct? And what he did in Jesus, he is now beginning and continuing to do where? In us. That's what it means. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. What does it mean? We are predestined to be men and women whose lives are 
have been enveloped by the Holy Spirit to reproduce in us the actual character and ministry activities of Jesus. For what reason? That in all of this, and this is crucial, why? Why all of this? Because in all of this, this is the proof to us that there is a risen, reigning, and returning man in the heavens called Jesus Christ, the Son of Glory. Next week, we'll talk about the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs>